Hello there, and welcome back again to What You May Have Missed. Before we get started, remember, if there are any burning questions or anything you want to know, then drop me an email at themythspodcast at gmail.com or tweet me on at mythedpodcast. As I said at the end of the episode last week, we are journeying much closer to home for me, to England. Now, although the legend of today doesn't take place in England, it's still regarded as one of the most important stories of Old English literature. It's also one of the most often translated legends, with authors such as Seamus Heaney, Elaine Trehan, and J.R.R. Tolkien writing translations. Do you know what legend it is yet? You will probably have heard it before, I'm sure. Originally an epic poem comprising 3,182 lines, the story of Beowulf is known around the world. Children learn about it at school, there are plays adapted from the story, books are published in endless amounts, and even Hollywood films, the most recent of which had Ray Winston as the titular role, where he uttered that famous line, My name is Beowulf, and I'm here to kill your monster because, as we all know, Beowulf was most definitely a cockney. The original text of Beowulf survives as a single manuscript, and the only way it can be dated is from experts analysing the scribe's handwriting. To be honest, I'm not really sure how they can figure out the age of a text by just handwriting, but there we go. But they have estimated that the text was written down in the early 11th century, making the story at least a thousand years old. As we have seen in the first and fourth episodes of this series, the oral tradition of storytelling was very popular, so although the story of Beowulf was put down on paper a thousand years ago, who knows how old the story actually is? As I have already said, the original form of the text was that of an epic poem, the same as Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. However, I will not be reading the original, as a. it is much too long to fit into a single podcast, and b. there are simpler versions of the story that are easier to understand than a 3,000-line alliterative poem. Therefore, my own adaption of one of the narrative versions of the story will be better suited to serve the purposes of this episode. Beowulf Long ago, there ruled over the Danes a king called Hrothgar. He gained so much success and glory in war that his kinsmen obeyed him without question, and everything prospered in his land. One day, Hrothgar decided to build a great banquet hall so as to entertain the old and young of his kingdom. Everyone in the land knew about the hall, and so they brought mighty gifts to which to beautify the hall. It took a long time to construct, but eventually the banquet hall was built and towered high and battlemented. Hrothgar named the hall 
Herot, and called guests to enjoy a banquet. He gave them gifts of rings and other treasures. From that day forth, the joyous sound of revelry rang loud in the hall with the music of the harp and the clear warbling of the singers. It sounds like a place that I would very much like to go, like a very comfortable and merry pub. However, it was not long before the pleasure of the king's men was broken, for a wicked demon began to work mischief against them. This cruel spirit was called Grendel, the ill-famed haunter of the marches of the land, a creature that dwelt on the moors and the fens. One night he came to Heorot, where the noble guests lay at rest after the feast, and seizing thirty thanes as they slept, set off to his home, revelling in his booty. As dawn broke, the men who were left realised what had happened, and there was great grief among them. The good King Hrothgar also sat in sorrow, devastated for the death of his warriors. Not long afterwards, Grendel appeared again and wrought a yet worse deed of murder. After that, the warriors no longer dared to sleep at Heorot. Instead, they sought out secret resting places after the feasts and left the great house empty. A long time passed. For the space of twelve winters, Grendel waged a perpetual feud against Hrothgar and his people. All night he would roam over the misty moors, visiting Heorot and destroying both the tried warriors and the young men whenever he was able. Hrothgar was broken-hearted, and he held many councils in secret to deliberate what it were best to do against this fearful creature, but nothing availed to stop the fiend's ravages. The tale of Grendel's deeds had now been heard in many lands, and amongst those who heard it were the Geats, whose king was Higelac. Chief of his thanes was a noble and powerful warrior named Beowulf, who resolved to go to the help of the Danes. He ordered his men to make ready a good sea-boat so that he might cross the deep to seek out Hrothgar and aid him. Beowulf's people encouraged him to go, even though he was dear to them, Imagine the glory he would bring back with them. So Beowulf chose fourteen of his keenest warriors and sailed away over the waves in his well-equipped vessel until he came within sight of the cliffs and mountains of Hrothgar's kingdom. The Danish warder, who kept guard over the coast, saw them as they tied their ship fast and carried their great weapons on shore. So he mounted his horse and rode to meet them, bearing his staff of office. He questioned them closely as to whence they came and what their business was. Beowulf explained their errand, and the warder, when he had heard it, bade them pass onwards, bearing their weapons, and gave orders that their ship should be safely guarded. Soon they came within sight of the fair place, Herot, and the warder showed them the way to Hrothgar's court, and then bade them farewell, and returned to keep watch upon the coast. The bold thanes marched forward to Herot, their armour and their weapons glittering as they went. Entering the hall, they set their shields and bucklers against the walls, placed their spears upright in a sheaf together, and sat down on the benches, weary from their journey. Then a knight of Hrothgar's stepped forward and asked, 
From where have you come, bringing your shields, your grey war shirts, frowning helmets, and this sheaf of spears? Never before have I seen men of more valiant features. We are Higelac's sworn men, answered Beowulf. Beowulf is my name, and I desire to declare my errand to the great prince, thy lord, if he will grant us leave to approach him. So Wolfgar, another of Hrothgar's chieftains, went out to the king, where he sat with the assembly of his earls, and told him of the arrival of the strangers. Hrothgar received the news with joy, for he had known Beowulf when he was a boy, and had heard of his fame as a warrior. He ordered Wolfgar bring him, and soon Beowulf stood before him and cried, Hail to thee, Hrothgar! I have heard the tale of Grendel, and my people, who know my strength and prowess, have encouraged me to seek you out, for I have wrought great deeds in the past, and now I shall do battle against this monster. Men say that so thick is this Grendel's hide that no weapon can injure him. I will therefore carry no sword or shield into the combat, but will fight with the strength of only my arm, and either I will conquer the beast, or he will bear away my dead body to the moor. If I fall in the fight, send Higilak, my beautiful breastplate. I have no fear of death, for destiny must ever be obeyed. Then Hrothgar told Beowulf of the great sorrow caused to him by Grendel's terrible deeds, and of the failure of all the attempts that had been made by the warriors to overcome him. Afterwards, he invited him to sit down with his men to partake of a meal. A bench was cleared for the Geats, and a thane waited upon them, and all the noble warriors gathered together. A great feast was held once more in Herot with much singing and merriment. Waltheo, Hrothgar's queen, came forward and handed the wine-cup to each of the thanes, proclaiming that the king was in a joyful mood and thanking Beowulf for his offer of help. At last all the company arose to go to rest, and Hrothgar entrusted the guardianship of Herot to Beowulf and bade him good night. Then all left the hall, save only a watch appointed by Hrothgar, and Beowulf himself with his followers, who laid themselves down to rest. No long time passed before Grendel came prowling from his home on the moors under the misty slopes. Full of his evil purpose, he burst with fury into the hall and strode forward, raging, a hideous, fiery light gleaming from his eyes. In the hall lay the warriors asleep, and Grendel laughed in his heart as he gazed at them, thinking to feast upon them all. Quickly he seized a sleeping warrior and devoured him. Mmm, delicious! Then, stepping forward, he reached out his hand towards Beowulf as he lay at rest. But Beowulf was ready for him. He seized his arm in a deadly grip such as Grendel had never felt before. Terror arose in the monster's heart, and his mind was bent on flight, but he could not get away. Then Beowulf stood upright and grappled with him firmly, and the two rocked to and fro in the struggle, knocking over benches and shaking the hall with the violence of their fight. Suddenly a new and terrible cry arose, the cry of Grendel in fear and pain, for never once did Beowulf relax his hold upon him. Then many of Beowulf's earls drew their swords and rushed to aid their master, but no blade could pierce him, 
and nothing but Beowulf's mighty strength could prevail. In a great shout, the monster's arm was torn off at the shoulder, and he fled to the fens, there to end his joyless life. Then Beowulf rejoiced at his knight's work, and fair play to him. Imagine being strong enough to rip the arm off a creature with impenetrable skin. He had freed Heorot forever from Grendel's ravages. The following day, the warriors flocked to the hall. When they heard what had taken place, they went out and followed Grendel's tracks to a mere upon the moors into which he had plunged and killed himself. Then, sure of his death, they returned rejoicing to Heorot, talking of Beowulf's glorious deed. There they found the king and queen and a great company of people awaiting them. And now there was great rejoicing and happiness. Profoundly gracious were the thanks that Hrothgar gave to Beowulf, and mighty was the feast prepared in Heorot. Cloths embroidered with gold were hung along the walls, and the hall was decked in every possible way. When all were seated, Hrothgar invited the attendants bring forth his gifts to Beowulf as a reward for victory. He gave him an embroidered banner, a helmet and breastplate, and a valuable sword, all adorned with gold and rich jewels. He also gave orders to the servants to bring into the court eight horses, one of which had a curiously adorned and very precious saddle, which the king himself used when he rode to practice the sword game. These also he gave to Beowulf, thus, like a true man, requiting his valiant deeds with horses and other precious gifts. He bestowed treasures also on each of Beowulf's followers, and gave orders that a price should be paid in gold for the man whom the wicked Grendel had slain. After this there arose within the hall the din of voices and the sound of song. The instruments also were brought out, and Hrothgar's minstrel sang a ballad for the delight of the warriors. Waltheo, the queen, came forth, bearing with her presents for Beowulf, a cup, two armlets, clothing and rings, and the largest and richest collar that could be found in all the world. When evening came, Hrothgar departed to his chambers, and the warriors cleared the hall and lay down to sleep once more, with their shields and armour beside them. But Beowulf was not with them, for another resting place had been assigned to him that night, for all thought that there was now no longer any danger to be feared. But in this they were mistaken. No sooner were they all asleep than Grendel's mother, a monstrous witch who dwelt at the bottom of a cold mere, came to Heorot to avenge her son. She burst into the hall, and the thanes stared up in terror, hastily grasping their swords. But she seized upon Asher, the most beloved of Hrothgar's warriors, who still lay sleeping, and bore him off with her to the fens, carrying also with her Grendel's arm, which had been placed at one end of the hall. Then there arose an uproar and the sound of mourning in Heorot. In fierce and gloomy mood, Hrothgar summoned Beowulf and told him the ghastly tale, begging him, if he dared, to go forth and seek out the monster and destroy it. Full of courage, Beowulf answered with cheerful words, promising that Grendel's mother would not escape him. 
and soon he was riding forth, fully equipped on his quest, accompanied by Hrothgar and many great warriors. They were able to follow the witch's tracks right through the forest glades and across the gloomy moor until they came to a spot where some mountain trees bent over a rock, beneath which lay a dreary and unsettled lake. There, beside the water's edge, lay the head of Asher. They knew that the witch must be at the bottom of the water. Full of terror, the warriors sat down, while Beowulf arrayed himself in his glistening coat of mail and his richly ornamented helmet. Then he turned to Hrothgar and spoke a last word to him. If the fight should go against me, great chieftain, be a guardian to my thanes, my kinsmen, and my trusty comrades. Send those treasures that you have given me to Higilak, that he may know your kindness to me. Now I will earn glory for myself, or death shall take me away. And he plunged into the eerie lake at the bottom of which was Grendel's mother. Very soon she perceived his approach, and, rushing forward, grappled with him and dragged him down to her den, where many horrible sea-beasts joined in the fight against him. This den was so fashioned that the water could not enter it, and it was lit by the light of a fire that shone brightly in the very centre. Beowulf drew his sword and thrust at his terrible foe, but the weapon could not injure her and he was forced to fling it away and trust in the powerful grip of his arms, as he had done with Grendel. Seizing the witch, he shook her till she sank onto the ground, but she quickly rose again and retaliated with a terrible slap, which caused Beowulf to stagger and then fall. Throwing herself upon him, she seized a dagger to strike him, but he wrenched himself free and once more stood upright. Then he suddenly noticed an ancient sword hanging upon the wall of the den and seized it as a last resort. Fierce and savage, but without much hope, he struck the monster heavily upon the neck with it. To his joy, the blade pierced right through her body and she sank down, dead. At that moment, the flames of the fire leapt up, throwing a brilliant light over the den, and there... Against the wall, Beowulf saw the dead body of Grendel lying on a couch. With one swinging blow of the powerful sword, he struck off his head as a trophy to carry to Hrothgar. But now a strange thing happened, for the blade of the sword began to melt away, even as ice melts, and soon nothing was left of it save the hilt. Carrying this and Grendel's head, Beowulf now left the den and swam upwards to the surface of the lake. There the thanes met him with great rejoicings. If God had not helped me, the result would have been quick and fatal, said Beowulf wearily. Some of the men quickly helped him to undo his armour, while others prepared to carry the great head of Grendel back to Heorot. It took four men to carry it, and though it was a wondrous sight, it was still a vile object. Once more the warriors assembled in Heorot, and Beowulf recounted to Hrothgar the full tale of his adventure, and presented to him the hilt of the wonderful sword. Again the king thanked him from the depth of his heart for his valiant deeds, and as before a fair feast was prepared, and the warriors made merry till night came, 
and they repaired to rest, certain this time of their safety. The following day, Beowulf and his nobles made ready to depart to their own land, and when they were fully equipped, they went to bid farewell to Hrothgar. Then Beowulf spoke, saying, Now we are voyagers, eager to return to our lord Higilak. We have been well and heartily entertained, O king, and if there is aught further that I can do for thee, then I shall be ready for thy service. If ever I hear thy neighbours again are persecuting thee, I will bring a thousand thanes to thy aid, and I know that Higilak will uphold me in this. Dear are your words to me, O Beowulf, Hrothgar answered, and great is your wisdom. If fate should take away the life of Higilak, the Geats could have no better king than you, and hereafter there shall never be more feuds between the Danes and the Geats, for you, by your great deeds, have made a lasting bond of friendship between us. Then Hrothgar gave more gifts to Beowulf and bade him seek his beloved people and afterwards come back to visit him, for so dearly had he grown to love him that he longed to see him again. The two embraced and bade each other farewell with great affection, and then at last Beowulf went down to where his ship rode at anchor and sailed away with his followers to his own country, taking with him the many gifts that Hrothgar had made to him. Coming to Higelac's court, he told him of his adventures, and having shown him the treasure, gave it all up to him, so loyal and true was he. But Higelac, in return, gave Beowulf a goodly sword and seven thousand pieces of gold and a manor-house and a princely seat for him to dwell in. There Beowulf lived in peace, and not for many years was he called to fresh adventures. Those of you who know the story of Beowulf know that this is not the end of his adventures, but they will be the topic of another episode later down the line. But I hope you enjoyed the first part of his story. It's a fantastic tale, in my opinion, but it's one that Hollywood never seems to get right. Over the years they have attempted to recreate, update and modify it several times. It's in the same category as cinematic adaptions of King Arthur and Shakespeare's plays, which is rather unfortunate. A story that is held in such high regard should be the basis for an excellent adaption on film. Well, I can live in hope for the next few years. You may have, as with other myths in this series, picked up on similarities with other legends you may know, and there have been many attempts to connect the story of Beowulf to the Greek and Roman epics of the Iliad, the Odyssey and the Aeneid. However, it is a lot easier to find parallels to none other than the Christian Bible. In the original text from the 11th century, Beowulf makes several references to praising God and a saviour. One historian, Richard North, has argued that Beowulf is a Danish myth in Christian form, as the original poet used the story as a means of entertaining Christian audiences in Britain. That is as far into this discussion I am going to delve for now, otherwise a religious argument is in danger of breaking out. This is not the only journey to England that we will be making during this podcast. Yes, we will be journeying back to Beowulf at some point to finish off his adventure, but, as many of you live here know, Britain has many a wonderful myth and legend, and none so epic as that of King Arthur. That is not next week, though. 
King Arthur will be appearing in Series 2. Next week, we are directing the boat south and venturing to South America, where a rather entertaining myth awaits us in Brazil. Remember, if you have any questions regarding any myth that has, or indeed hasn't, appeared in this series, then you can email me at themythspodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me on at mythedpodcast. For now, farewell, and I shall see you next week for another episode of What You May Have Missed.